This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. You ready, Bob? Well, all right. Audiences are raving. Bob Marley is electrifying. It's the feel-good movie of the year. You dig? Bob Marley, One Love. Rated PG-13. Now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Welcome into another episode of the Swamp 247 Podcast. I am your host, Graham Hall, joined by my co-host, Jacob Runder. And now we're going to talk a little bit more about Florida's big upset of Tennessee. The Gators prevailed 29-16 to over then number 11-ranked Tennessee. And it was quite a contest, Jacob. We talked a little bit about it in the immediate aftermath. If you missed that episode, go check it out over at the Swamp 247 Podcast where we gave our recap thoughts just the next day of what we thought about that game and now we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about that game and Jacob I'll just dive right into it the success that Florida's offense was able to have in this game I know that we both had our doubts about how Florida would fare against a power five team especially after the team looked very I think you could say one-dimensional would be a kind way to say it about how Florida favored you know fared in Salt Lake City but in this game, they were able to establish the run as they did against McNeese. Graham Mertz was once again effective. So to see it against a defense that came in here from a statistical standpoint, ranked very, very high among, you know, albeit with a small sample size, but among the teams in the country, uh, I, I thought it was, you know, impressive. But what did you see? What stood out to you about how Florida's offense was uh, able to have some success against the Volunteers? Yeah, this this was a good game for Florida, and 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 you know, granted, if you're listening consistently to the Swamp Two Four Seven podcast, uh, you have already heard us give some thoughts uh, and initial reactions on the team. We, we we spoke about that in our podcast earlier this week, uh, but after reviewing the film, I, I still feel much of the same way that I said earlier this week. I was really impressed with the balance of the play calling, maybe not necessarily in terms of Florida's aggressiveness down the field and its willingness to kind of take deeper shots. But certainly, uh, with its ability to spread the ball laterally across the field uh, in its passing game, targeting receivers closer to the boundary uh, and, and forcing Tennessee to respect Florida in that way, just you know, being able to defend receivers outside toward the perimeter, which of course allows Florida to be a little more successful on the ground, uh, just with a less crowded box. You know, just you know, a, a byproduct really of of having a successful lateral passing game. Uh, was it the most impressive passing performance of all time? No. Uh, but was it effective and, and what the team needed for that game? Absolutely. Uh, I would say it was. Graham Mertz completed 19 of 24 passes for 166 yards. That's 79% completion percentage. Uh, he had a touchdown. He's completing well over 70% of his passes on the season. Uh, and as we said in our previous show, you know, just a guy who's delivered what Florida has needed so far. And I think that that was really evident throughout this game, even without overwhelming passing numbers and, and certainly uh, you know without much downfield action only two passes over 15 yards uh, both 18 yarders that's not terribly impressive but again it worked uh, it enabled Florida to rush for 183 yards on the game on 43 carries with three touchdowns so this performance was balanced Graham and I think that uh, 
a lot of credit you know, can be given to Billy Napier here with his play calling. I know that that's something that we've even questioned, you know, his aggressiveness and whether or not he was willing to kind of open things up through the air. Uh, this was a step in the right direction. Was it everything Florida needed to be offensively? No, probably not. I'm sure that there's more that can kind of be opened up here still with this unit as the season progresses, but uh, a win is a win. And Florida put up 29 points. That was all it needed uh, for a 13-point margin of victory. Uh, the overall takeaway, even after watching the film, is that this was an impressive offensive performance. It was what the team needed. It was effective. And, of course, again, at the end of the day, uh, it's secured a win. Yeah, Florida understands what their formula for success is on offense, established the run, have Graham Mertz be successful on those passes under 20 yards, especially that inner, you know, that short passing range of zero to nine yards. He's extremely effective on those plays. He doesn't overfire his receivers. There was a very catchable ball. And I think that when they establish the run and he's able to do that, this is a guy who's extremely efficient. I said this last week, he's not the problem when Florida has everything clicking. Now it's when you ask him to go out and lead you back and establish the downfield passing game. And that is, I agree with you. I still think there are some question marks there for whether Florida is able to do that. The other question is, how necessary is that going to be? If, if the defense plays the way that it did against the Volunteers and Florida is able to outgain their opponent on the ground and get, you know, 170 yards from a guy like Trevor Etienne, it's going to be no problem. You know, he's not going to have to go out there and take shots downfield. That really, I think, means that you do have to give not only a ton of credit to the backfield, who I think had to answer uh, the call after they were effective against McNeese but had struggled against Utah, give Trevor Etienne a whole lot of credit. He was dynamic, got to you know the next level, broke tackles. He was patient. He identified the hole um, correctly a whole bunch of the times. You know, th that was a guy who understood the assignment and still a young guy. I think, you know, we have to keep that in perspective. Only just went through his first spring camp last, you know, this past March. So for him to be successful, I think that was um, extremely promising for Florida, especially the rest of the way. And Graham Mertz has continued to maybe not be this dynamic uh, talent, but he has been everything that Florida, in my opinion, thought that they were getting in, in Graham Mertz, a game manager. And you saw against the Volunteers how good this Florida team can be when everything goes right. But a lot of the reason that he was able to play within himself was because Florida's defense, after giving up an early score, was so impressive in my mind. It allowed Florida to be able to score those 26 unanswered points. Jacob, you've had a chance to watch it back. What did you see out of Florida's defense? What did they do well? And just what stood out to you? Yeah, this is a defense that has an effective pass rush. And granted, uh, have we seen exceptional sack numbers through three games? No, I don't think we really have. Uh, only one against Tennessee is not necessarily a standout. However, uh, plenty of pressure put on the quarterback throughout the game. Uh, at no time was that clear than when Desmond Watson was able to break through the offensive line and put pressure on Joe Milton, uh, which led to a significant interception in the second quarter. Devin Moore picking off a pass and returning it deep uh, into Tennessee territory, which set up a Florida score. Uh, that is a credit to Florida's defensive front, all of whom played quite well. Cameron Jackson was named the SEC Defensive Lineman of the Week for his performance, uh, the pressure that Florida was able to put on Tennessee, as well as its ability to stop the run, were very significant. This was a poised performance. Tackling was clean throughout. 
you know, 3.7 yards allowed per rush on 29 attempts is very good. Uh, Joe Milton was contained in terms of his ability to impact the game with his legs. Uh, you know, Florida won the turnover battle. Billy Napier also pointed out uh, Florida had four fourth down stops, three fourth down stops, excuse me. Uh, and he views those as turnovers. So altogether, uh, four turnovers, including the interceptions and the fourth downs. Uh, I'm impressed with Florida's edges. They played with a lot more discipline than we saw last year. Uh, and then the secondary played great. Uh, Jordan Castell, who has you know really received his flowers this week for his performance, uh, was excellent throughout this game. Great coverage, especially on deeper passes. He was extremely effective. Um, you know, just looking through the, the notes here, I really don't have uh, a whole lot of negative to say. I think that this was a group that looks just so vastly improved to where it was last year and the issues that plagued that group. Uh, third downs are cleaner. Uh, tackling is cleaner. Run fits are so much better from the defensive lineman to the secondary when it comes to fitting the run. But in no area is it clearer than linebacker. Shamar James, Scooby Williams have been outstanding. Shamar James is one of the highest, uh, if not still the highest, graded linebacker in the country right now through three weeks. Uh, this is a unit that really truly looks Great, I would go as far as to say, and, and give the credit to Austin Armstrong. I mean, we had really good feelings about him uh, as far back as the spring. You and I kind of had a feeling, I think, uh, that he was going to maybe change the pace uh, defensively at the University of Florida. And I think that it's fair to say through for three weeks that he's kind of done that. Uh, it, it, this is a unit that looks so much better than I think even we maybe necessarily expected. I, I knew Florida would look better this year. I don't know that I anticipated them being great through three weeks. I mean, this is, this is a team that's played, you know, two top 15 opponents so far and ranks 10th in total defense in the nation. It's excellent. And uh, you know, it's a huge leap in the right direction and, and I'm excited to continue to see how they uh, progress through this season because so far very, very good. Yeah. The improvements of the defense were something that we had, I think predicted throughout the last eight months and we'd based it on several factors. Obviously the, arrival of Austin Armstrong, who, you know, let's be honest, the guy was at Alabama for a reason. He was the youngest defensive coordinator in the nation, what, not even a year ago. And there, if he, you know, hadn't been snatched up by Florida in the wake of Patrick Tony's exit, you know, there's a reason that Austin Armstrong's name was floated instantly when Patrick Tony was leaving because Florida had to be in on this guy from the moment that they knew Tony was leaving or else he probably could have got another job at another program programs like you know, Oregon, we're, we're looking at him as well. So I think you are seeing that validated right now. And, you know, the continuity, there are other factors here. You know, he probably is a humble guy who's not going to take all the credit. He can definitely say that the returning personnel, the veteran players that they got in, the similarities between what he does and what Patrick Tony looked to do, the terminology, especially the familiarity with Billy Napier and the coaching staff. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. They've made it so that he could hit the ground running. And in just six months, you've seen tangible improvement from this defense. And Jacob, I know you can attest to this. I, I was one of the people who thought that Cam Jackson had a terrific game. I mean, when we made our list of players that we want to talk to ahead of this Charlotte contest, I said that Cam Jackson was at the top of my list, not just because he's a fantastic quote, but because he has such a good game. Him, Caleb Banks, Obviously, you get Desmond Watson back. You can rotate Chris McClellan in. I mean, the interior of the defensive line right there, Jamari Lyons as well. I mean, that's five guys right now that Florida feels comfortable playing in, in this, you know, defensive line room. And then you factor in the guys that you have on the edges. Your, your, your freshman, Kelby Collins, TJ Searcy coming in. You have Princely and 
this role that has him dropping into coverage and in rushing the passer. I mean, this is a defense that has a lot of, I think, players that are just succeeding in the roles that they are in. And that's where you have to give a lot of credit to the coaching staff and to see this young 29 or I don't even think he's 30 years old to see this young guy who's maybe younger than me, man, be, you know, getting this defense where it needs to be, not even just where it needs to be, but, you know, one of the best in the nation right now through three games is extremely impressive and it's worth noting. So I, you know, that's absolutely one of the bright spots for Florida, the success they had on offense and defense. Unfortunately, you know, it wasn't all peaches and gravy for the Gators. And we're going to have to talk a little bit about some of the, you know, down spots from this game, um, especially as it pertains to the future for the Gators. We'll start with one who started as a bright spot on the first drive of the game. That is Eugene Trey Wilson, the third who as fans know, if you've been following all of our coverage at swamp247.com, this guy has got on campus in June and emerged to a starting position in less than three months. And he was absolutely all over the field on Florida's offensive first offensive series, was targeted six times, and he hauled in all six of his receptions for more than 40 yards. Unfortunately, Wilson exited with an upper body injury, which was deemed to be a clavicle injury. He could not return for the second half of the contest. And now it looks like he's out for an undetermined amount of time. As head coach Billy Napier said, it's going to come down to a pain management issue for Wilson. Jacob, just what kind of loss is this for Florida? What does it do to the team's offense? And just from what you're understanding on the situation, how soon could this guy possibly return to the field and get back to being a dynamic weapon on the rise for the Gators in just his first few months in Gainesville? Well, I want to start with this. Uh, the you know the fact that it's a pain management situation, and uh, that is what will determine his return. That's huge. Uh, let's just let's just set that uh, out there right away because uh, the initial fear was that Eugene Wilson broke his collarbone, which he did uh, as a high school player. It required him to only play seven games as a senior, uh, and and that's significant. So you know this is somebody who's already experienced an injury like that, uh, and based on what had happened in the game early on in that first quarter that required him to miss the rest of the contest. I think the initial fear was that he had done it again. Uh, and so the fact that it is what sounds like a deep bone bruise that will allow him to uh, come back when ready kind of a situation, uh, that's big. That So just right off the bat, good news. Uh, the not as good news, I guess, is that it does sound like it's bothering him quite a bit. Um, and it does sound like it's extremely doubtful, if not already determined that it's not going to happen, uh, that he will play this week against Charlotte uh, Florida taking on the 49ers in Gainesville. Uh, I don't expect him to play. I would say at the moment that Kentucky is looking questionable uh, for Eugene Wilson. But again, that goes back to what Billy Napier said, and it is a uh, pain tolerance situation. So if he feels like he's ready to go uh, and Florida's training staff is able to deem it that he is ready to go, uh, then he will indeed play. So we'll just have to kind of continue to monitor that on a day-to-day basis. But again, as far as this week's matchup with Charlotte goes, if I were a Florida fan keeping tabs uh, on who I might see, wouldn't have Eugene Wilson on that list at the moment. Uh, I would, I would pretty confidently, uh, you know, write his name in in, in pen, maybe pencil, uh, on the out list at the moment. But we'll see. Yeah, that definitely would be a blow to Florida's pass catching unit if he's out for more than a couple of weeks. If they get him back for that Kentucky game, and I know that that'd be huge for a team that's going on the road and will 
presumably if they take care of business against Charlotte this weekend, be three and one and a chance to be four and one against a Kentucky team that hasn't looked great, but it also is a blow to Florida um, from the special teams perspective, considering Wilson was working in the return game along with Ricky Pearsall back there and a couple of other guys, Florida's special teams unit. That's another thing that we have got to talk about. I, I just absolutely, it is not a extremely polished unit. We continue to see, uh, missed extra point attempts, missed field goal attempts, uh, two-point conversions that then have to occur and and haven't looked amazing from a you know trickery, play-calling, unique standpoint, whatever you want to call it. They don't look like they have a well-designed two-point play uh, in there as well. I think you can say, I mean, we're even seeing shanked punts. Uh, you know, got a lot of respect for Jeremy Crawshaw. There's a reason he's on that Rake Guy Award watch list, but even he is not immune from some of the issues we are seeing. I think it's just Rocco Underwood right now who kill, is killing it at long snapper right now and providing some veteran leadership. I joke, but that special teams unit, Jacob, it is one that Florida continues to, I think, tinker with. And we could still see, I think, some changes made as we saw in that Tennessee game where after Adam Mahalik was unable to convert a pair of kicks, the Gators went to sophomore kicker Trey Smack and Smack was able to convert a chip shot field goal in that game, make an extra point. Um, just what do you make of this unit right now? And what are some of the things that you're looking forward to improving? I know it's just probably a few things that I just mentioned, but just what are you looking forward from that unit moving forward? What corrections need to be made? Because I know it wasn't consequential against Tennessee, but leaving five, six points on the board is going to come back to bite you more often than not when you're playing these grueling SEC matchups. There is no question about that, uh, and there is no question at this point that Florida's special teams are just vastly subpar. Uh, they did not play the standard last year, uh, in my opinion, and I would imagine really anybody who closely followed the Florida Gators last year. Uh, they have not played to standard through three games this year, in my opinion, nor in the opinion, of, I'm assuming, uh, of most people who follow the Florida Gators closely. I think that this is a unit... Um, I hate to put it this way. It's just a unit looks disorganized. I mean, uh, you know, the return game, in my opinion, is extremely underwhelming when given an opportunity. Uh, Florida has not really been productive on punt. Uh, the decision-making in terms of when to, you know, fair catch and, and down a ball like that or, you know, let the ball go so the, you know, the kicking team can down it versus when to attempt a return still seems shady to me. I and mean, maybe slightly better than it was last year, but – you know, even now is very unimpressive and, 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 you know, to me looks poorly coached. Uh, and you mentioned the kicking game, I think has been problematic. Adam Mahalik, uh completely whiffed on a 42 yard field goal on Florida's first possession of the game on Saturday against Tennessee. Like you said, that was inconsequential. Uh, but uh, you know, how often are you going to get away with that? It was a shanked field goal that, that didn't even have a, sh a shot at, at, at being good. It was, it was no good off his foot. It was immediately bad. Uh, and the same can be said for a PAT just a couple minutes later in the game. So, uh, you know, Trey Smack, in my opinion, should be the starting kicker for the Florida Gators moving forward. Uh, he has a bigger leg, even if maybe slightly more inaccurate, uh, you know, when you get into those longer distances. But again, you know, that's your scholarship kicker. Uh, he was he was rated a five-star kicker for a reason. I would like to see him, you know, take over the role full-time. Uh, and, and, you know, looking further into the future – Again, if we're being honest here, it's probably time for Florida to start considering a special teams coordinator. You look at you know some of the bigger issues on this team, and I think special teams is 
among them, if not you know chief among them. And uh, that's the one position that doesn't have a coach. It, it, it's somebody who is an analyst in Chris Couch, and and you know, uh, in in no way is this a direct knock on him, but but clearly the work has been insufficient thus far. And I think that uh, there are very few people who would deny that it, the, the unit has not been good enough. It doesn't grade out well. Uh, you know, in these numerical based statistical databases like PFF or wherever you use. Uh, and so it's not, you don't have to take my word for it. You can just look it up. The unit has been subpar. Uh, and that's unacceptable for a team that, I, you know, honestly has shown a lot of progress in recent weeks outside of that unit. Offense has looked much better. It had a good game against Tennessee. Defense looks spectacular, like we said on the show, you know, a couple of minutes ago. And special teams is just so far behind. And so, you know, my question at this point is at what point does it, you know, come back to the staff? What, at what point is it a reflection of the structure. A couple of weeks ago, Billy Napier told us it's not a reflection uh, of the structure of things in Gainesville in terms of how the unit is coached. And uh, they plan to continue to stick with their strategy of dividing it up amongst the staff and having Chris Couch coordinate all of that. But, but again, the reality is we are, you know, what is it now? 16 games into Billy Napier's tenure. He's eight and eight. And what has been a consistent area of struggle, special teams. And so, uh, in my opinion, the game changers could use uh, maybe a change of scenery in how they are directed, uh, and and hopefully that can spur some improvement because right now it's just it's unacceptable in my opinion. Yeah, I, I always hesitant to be the guy calling for someone's job, but I do think that based on the performance from what we've seen, it it you know comes down to you have a like you said a five star kicker in there. We've seen Jeremy Crawshaw be extremely effective i think in the past and the return game we know that they have dynamic weapons and you know you watch college football you watch the nfl teams are figuring out how to block punts and kicks i mean florida fans became used to seeing that stuff you know not even two decades ago there was a head coach here a national championship winning head coach who prioritized special teams and you know made it uh, a sticking point to where if you put the extra effort in on special teams, it would affect your playing time on the field. And, you know, I think a certain amount of pride in that aspect of the game, knowing how, you know, you call it the game changer coordinator for a reason. I mean, you got to practice what you preach, right? If that unit is not hitting the metrics that you're looking for, you know, a change may need to be made, whether it's from a personnel standpoint or an infrastructure standpoint, Obviously, uh, that may have to wait until the end of the season unless this thing really gets even worse that uh, it can't wait. And that's not happening right now. Florida is preparing for Charlotte. And the last thing we got to talk about before we wrap up this episode of the Swamp 247 podcast is something we were a little bit hesitant to touch on on Sunday because we didn't really know how it all would shake out. It was still being reviewed by the league office. Discipline was being doled out inside the Florida football building. But now we know that three Florida players will miss the first half of the Charlotte contest due to that final, you know, second scuffle at the end of the game, which frankly, you know, it's not about who starts it, right? It's about who finishes it. And while Florida may not feel like they were the ones who led to that incident, it probably fairly, you could say it was on uh, Amari Thomas hitting Graham Mertz. You know, I think that regardless of that, the Gators, escalated it afterwards and now they're going to have a couple players paying the price in a game that shouldn't be 
uh, very close, but you never really know. And this may be one of those, you know, Billy Napier called it a teachable moment. This may be one of those things where, where Florida isn't as effective as they would like to be because they're going to have some key starters out, especially on the offensive line, Jacob. Uh, yeah, I, I got to keep it. I got to keep it honest here. I, I don't necessarily think that this is a big deal for Florida. Um, do I understand where the players who reacted the way they did were coming from based on the circumstances? I think I do. Um, you know, your quarterback's taking a knee. The game's clearly over. Tennessee has no chance. Uh, that was unnecessary. You know, uh, do I think Josh Heupel would have apologized uh, to Billy Napier in the immediate aftermath of the game if he thought it was nothing? Uh, no. And, and there's video of Josh Heupel apologizing. So, uh, you know, it was a rivalry game and the chippy play at the end of the game and Florida's players reacted in a chippy way. And the SEC, you know, dished out what I think was an appropriate punishment. Guys will miss, uh, you know, on both sides, a half a game. Uh, it seems fairly inconsequential. Both teams are playing non-conference opponents this week. Uh, these are guys who are going to be able to, you know, take a little load off their legs uh, for half of a game and then get back in there and get their work in for the week. Uh, and they also face some league discipline for, you know, you shouldn't be fighting. Billy Napier said that, <laughs> and I agree. There's there's no reason to be uh, playing like that. It, but at the same time, it does happen, uh, and it's being dealt with. And so I think not a big deal. Uh, Damian George will probably be replaced, you know, at least for the first half by uh, uh, Lindell Hudson, who's been Florida's third offensive tackle. It'll be good to get him some first-half reps with the first-team unit. You know, you never know. Uh, Injuries, like Billy Napier said, can impact a team at any time. And uh, with Austin Barber and Damian George, you never know. Uh, and so Lindell Hudson will get you know an extended look, which I think is nice. Uh, Najee Harris, the true freshman, should get an extended look, which will be nice with Michael Mazuka out for the first half. Uh, and Dante Sanders has not been starting recently, so you know we shouldn't really see too much disruption in what goes on at tight end, uh, especially if Tony Livingston is able to play, which is unclear at this time, just especially considering who the opponent is. Uh, and with Kentucky a week later. So, you know, look, it, it doesn't really impact Florida. My biggest question, honestly, out of all of this is Billy Napier did mention during his press conference on Monday uh, that there were some staff members he felt should be disciplined on his staff uh, for their roles in the altercation. Uh, and if you, it doesn't take very long. If you, if you look on Twitter, it's, it's hard to tell who it was. Uh, and so I won't name names, you know, because I'm it's not my place to do that. Uh, but there were certainly Florida staff members who were involved in that. Uh, and, and Billy Napier was clearly bothered by the fact that that occurred. And so my question is, will there be staff members who face league or internal discipline uh, for their involvement? If so, what does that look like? Uh, if so, do we even hear about it? We might not. So you know, I don't really know, you know if anything major is going to come out of this. But uh, you know, for offering an opinion, for those of you listening, uh, hopefully it doesn't happen again, and I'm sure that would make Billy Napier happy. Otherwise, it happens. It's football. Welcome to football. Great take, my man, <laughs> because I know there was a part of you that really enjoyed seeing that fight. I know, if you don't know, Jacob Rudner, known fighting advocate, so I know there was a part of you that enjoyed the last 10 seconds of that game. You know, in all seriousness, Billy <laughs> Napier has come in here and said that he's all about cleaning up the undisciplined type penalties and, and other stuff. I know that there was a part of him that was bothered by what transpired at the end of the game, just seeing his players. And as you mentioned, staff members throwing punches, squaring up with guys justified or not. 
Um, you don't want to see that stuff sully the end of a game. You kind of want to always be that team that takes the high road and gets out of there with your double-digit defeat and lets the sore losers, you know, lick their wounds there. But absolutely, you know, seeing a little bit of scuffle. I like hockey for that reason. You know, I like seeing two teams, you know, take off their gloves and, and go at it sometimes for that reason. Um, you know, in baseball, who doesn't like seeing when the dugout clears and, you know, two teams charge the mound? That's the most action you'll see in a baseball game often in my mind. So I think with all that being said, uh, I, I don't think it will come back to hurt Florida. I think it's more just the principle of the thing for, for the head coach. You know, he doesn't want to be looked like, you know, people to think that his program is undisciplined because they sure. have been trying to shed that angle, you know, since Utah, they look like they shot themselves in the foot so much. They clean up a lot of it against McNeese and they have a really good game where they're not penalized a whole bunch. And then you, you ruin that memory by the fact that now you have three suspended players for that game. So a big deal. No, but I'm sure Billy Napier still thinking about it a little bit, especially if, like you said, he's going to have to discipline some internal assistance because you want to just forget about the whole thing. If you got to worry about discipline, it means you're still thinking about the last game and that's the last thing any coach wants, but this is the last we're going to talk about the Tennessee game, a big upset win for the Gators. We'll be back in a couple days with a preview of Florida's contest with the Charlotte 49ers, another night game in the swamp. Can't wait. Love night games. Love going to bed at 4 a.m. It's the best. <laughs> we'll have tons of content coming to you in the 48 hours before the podcast, so stay tuned to swamp247.com. As always, I'm your host, Graham Hall, joined by my co-host, Jacob Rudner, and we'll be back very soon. Take care. See you all later.